I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 5 through the first half of 7 this morning, just a brief passage. We looked last week at how God operates in the true Christian's life, and we looked at this panorama from before the creation of the world all the way to Christ's sacrifice at the cross, a person's faith in Jesus, all the way to glory, all the way to eternal life itself. And we marveled at the panorama of God's grace. This morning, we're going to ask the question, how can a true Christian know whom to follow? How can, how can you know whom to follow? Is it, is it charisma? Is it what often goes in this word leadership? Is it speaking ability? Is it Bible knowledge? Person that wins the Bible quiz, you listen to them. How, how can a Christian know whom to follow? Paul's little letter to Titus answers that question. Uh, before I get into that, though, I want to share with you a couple of things. First, here's a picture of 15 of the, the leaders of 15 of the 16 largest churches in America. <clears throat> I don't know any of these guys. So I don't know whether they are, you know, wonderful, delightful, godly people. I I don't know that. What I do know is that they all have really white teeth and bright smiles. Um, for the most part, they've got a nice head of hair. And when they don't, they chop the picture off so that you can't see that they're bald. I didn't do that. That was on the website, okay? Um, we sometimes, we sometimes look more on outward appearance than we do on the heart, don't we? Um, as, you, as you think about that, I want to share with you some qualifications that the Pharisees of Jesus' day and then the next couple of centuries it got codified into a book called the Mishnah described as the qualifications for a priest to serve in the temple. Okay, these are qualifications for a priest to be able to serve in the temple. The priest who is bald-headed is unqualified for temple service. What is understood in the legal sense uh, by a bald-headed person? one that has not a row of hair going around from ear to ear, but if he has such a strip of hair, he's qualified. But if one has no eyebrows or only one eyebrow, disqualified. If you have your eyebrows hanging down over your eyes, disqualified. If you have a wedge-shaped head or a turnip-shaped head or a mallet-shaped head or a sunken head or a head flat behind, disqualified. 
if your, lower, if your upper lip project beyond your lower lip or if the lower lip protrude beyond the upper one, disqualified. If your teeth were removed, disqualified because of your unsightly appearance. A priest that is flat-nosed is unqualified for temple service. They go on to define what flat-nosed means. If your eyes are as big as those of a calf or as small as those of a goose, disqualified. Got to get right in the middle. You see, things haven't changed much. We, and rightly, we chuckle over these Pharisaic qualifications for priesthood, don't we? But it was trying to say that you have somebody that looks the part. Have we changed all that much? Have we changed all that much? I, I don't know. But it begs the question, to whom should we follow? To whom should we listen? How can we know whom to follow? Is it charisma, leadership, speaking ability, Bible knowledge, how big your eyes are, how much hair you have or don't have? What, 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 how do we know? Would you stand for the reading of God's Word this morning? Titus 1, verses 5 through 9. Paul writes to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Please have a seat. Here in this section of Titus, Paul is telling us that God gives leaders to his church so that the true Christian can know whom to follow. Obviously, we follow Jesus, but is there anyone that we can listen to that helps us follow Jesus? And Paul says, yes. He gives leaders to his church so that the true Christian can know whom to follow. Paul has left Titus in Crete and journeys onward. He had been imprisoned. He was released from his imprisonment. He came to Crete, left Titus there, and he went on up into Asia Minor and Greece. And so, in order to understand a little bit about Crete, I have to give you a map. Very good. You guys have not forgotten. Crete's down here at the bottom of our map, just south of the Aegean Sea more or less in the middle between Turkey and Greece. 
Um, it's the fifth largest island in the Mediterranean. Uh, it's about 160 miles long, and its width varies from, you see that one little spot pretty narrow on the east side that's seven and a half miles wide to 37 miles wide at its widest. It has over 600 miles of coastline, uh, sandy beaches, rocky shores. Um, it's a mountainous island. Its highest peak reaches over 8,000 feet. Um, by the second century BC, Crete had a substantial Jewish population, uh, powerful enough to obtain the protection of Rome. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 11, we read that on the day of Pentecost, there were people from Crete who were witness to the movement, the unique movement of the Holy Spirit on that day. <clears throat> there was a large and influential Jewish population on Crete at this time. And uh, these Cretan Jews, in addition to the being exposed to the gospel at Pentecost, it apparently became a fertile location for missionary work. And so there were not just a church, but churches scattered in many of the cities on Crete. And centuries earlier from when Paul wrote this, the uh, poet Homer talked about the Crete being known for its many cities. And so, if you look at verse 5 here, you'll see, this is why I left you in Crete, so that, <clears throat> two reasons. First, you might put what remained into order. Secondly, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Uh, put what remained into order, that's a, a little bit of a confusing translation. Perhaps the better way to say it is to put into order what is lacking. In other words, the churches were functioning, but Paul left Titus there on Crete to be able to help them to overcome the things that are lacking in those fellowships. Several towns on the island where churches had been established but they had little in the way of godly leadership. They were asking the question, whom should we follow? How, how can we know whom to follow? And here Paul is saying God gives leaders to his church so that the true Christian can know. Uh, then the second thing he says here is to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. <clears throat> Now, this phrase, as I directed you, suggests that this letter that Paul wrote to Titus wasn't just intended for Titus, but for the churches on Crete to read it, to read the letter too. Paul emphasizes the I here in verse 5, as I myself directed you, implying his authority, which Titus doesn't really need to have that emphasized. He accepts Paul's authority. So why does Paul say it that way? It seems as though what Paul wanted to have happen was for the Cretans, as it were, to read over Titus's shoulder this letter that he's written so that Titus's activities on Crete would be known to have the authority of the apostle Paul behind them. Not just Titus's opinion, but actually have the authority of the Apostle Paul behind them. So let's dive in here on this second purpose to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. 
Uh, what is an elder? Well, first, it's someone from within the local church, so that these elders are appointed from within the church fellowship, and they are to have the qualifications for the office. And this is going to be important going forward. The qualifications are not external. Notice nothing here in Paul's description of what the qualifications are for these elders is about how much hair they have or what their eyebrows look like or how big their eyes are or, or not. That's, the, that's, that's not in question. Rather, the qualifications here are of a character nature, of a description of their faith in Jesus and how it is being lived out in their lives. This is important more important than you might know. You see, <clears throat> our culture has a way of squeezing us into its mold in ways that are even sub or unconscious to us. And so when we read things in the Scripture that we don't like, we'll look at it and go, well, that's not true. And we ask ourselves, why do I think that's not true? It's generally because of the circumstances in which we are living that help us think that that's not good. I would call it sola cultura rather than sola scriptura, you see. It doesn't mean that everything about our culture is bad. We need discernment. But it does mean that our culture does, the fact that we, are, we live in a culture causes us to think in ways that we wouldn't ordinarily have thought. It's going to become more difficult as time goes on because our culture is running away from the authority of Scripture rather than running toward it. And so it's going to become increasingly challenging for us to think about these things. Um, so when we think about leadership in the church, it's not about the person who's the best Christian leader. Even though leadership is not a bad thing to have, it's not about that. It's not about the person with the most charisma. Oh, it's not wrong to be... Uh, <laughs> possessing of charisma. It's not about the person with the most photogenic face, although it's not altogether wrong to have a photogenic face, or the person who has the most photogenic family. It's not even about the person who is the most knowledgeable about the Bible. It is rather about the character of a life lived according to the Scriptures, according to following Jesus as Lord. Now, there are two, I'm going to share with you two controversial examples of how our culture squeezes us into its mold. One is way more controversial than the other, but I just want to raise them because I want you to think about this, okay? Many people, many churches, press people into leadership in the church because they are successful in business or in life. Why should that person be made an elder? 
Why should we listen to someone on spiritual matters simply because they built a successful business? Often those folks are used to having their own way, and they have a very hard time being able to give way humbly in a church setting. Now, (laughs) don't misunderstand me. Being successful should not be a disqualifier, right? Shouldn't disqualify someone for that, but it's not a qualifier either. Even more controversially, in an era and a culture where feminist ideology reigns supreme, the question of why elders in a church should be male is a hot-button question because many women are fine leaders with great charisma, have a better public image, and are more knowledgeable about the Bible. Why not have women be elders in the church? After all, as our culture teaches us, the patriarchy is strong and we need to avoid that. Not altogether a bad, bad thought. This is a question that we tackled four years ago in the parallel qualifications that Paul gave in 1 Timothy and 1 Timothy 3, so I refer you to that message. Here, I simply want to repeat that it's important to know that we need to listen to elders who have the qualifications for the office. And if the qualifications for the office given by the Bible are husband of one wife, his children are believers, he must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, or a drunkard, violent, greedy for gain, then our submission to biblical authority must take precedence over our cultural attitudes, even overseeing that there are women who are far more capable in some ways than men in the church are. We don't realize just how deeply our culture impacts our assumptions. For the better part of 2,000 years of church history, this went as an unquestioned idea. And the challenge of it now dominates the thinking, even among Christians, To think that elders should only be male is a minority position, even within evangelicalism now. And you have to ask, what changed? Did the Bible change, or did our culture change? Someone from within the local church who has the qualifications for office, and notice the need for plurality. Uh, Appoint elders in every town, verse 5 says, elders. So it's more than one, that there's somehow a security and a safety in the fact that we have a plurality, so that there isn't some kind of evil domination that is so easy to have happen in any leadership role. The term elder literally means an aged man, which should at least cause us to think about the way in which the modern church culture emphasizes the vitality of being young. It's not wrong to be a young elder. I don't think that this disqualifies a young man from being an elder. But we need to be careful that we don't exclude 
older men either, because the term in the New Testament simply means a church leader. It, it comes from the synagogue, which had elders that led them, and actually synagogues had how you had to be at least this old and not that old in order to serve, you know, so. The term came from the Old Testament, out of the synagogue, it, it originated from the Old Testament where there were elders that were appointed over the people of Israel. The term first appears even before Moses leads the people out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 3. We have that word in verse 5, appoint elders in every town, and then we have another word in verse 7, an overseer. Uh, they are different words, but they are referring to the same office in the church. The word elder is the Greek word presbyteros, and the word overseer is the word episkopos. Um, two different denominations, haven't they, have taken up those terms as their name to describe their church organization and government. But the first term, elder, points to the maturity of those in this office. The second, overseer, points to the task of pastoral oversight. The main function is to care for the members of the church by teaching them. And so if teaching is such an important role, this question, this question that we asked at the beginning, who should the true Christian listen to? Who should a, the true Christian follow? Is critically important. In verse 7, the elder, this overseer, is called God's steward. Elders, therefore, have a stewardship responsibility to God's flock. As such, they're going to give an accounting to God for their stewardship. It's not something to take lightly. And so the goal of an elder is not to be a representative of the congregation. Elders are not Congress. <laughs> They're not to be a representative of some constituency within the church. Elders are not supposed to be the fly in the ointment making sure that things don't change or making sure that they do. Rather, the goal of an elder is to bring harmony and effective leadership, not as spiritual giants, but as men who know they've been saved out from their rebellion to God by the blood of Jesus. With those responsibilities comes increased scrutiny. While all believers are accountable to God, elders have the additional accountability for the church they serve. So an elder's conduct does in fact require additional examination. This doesn't mean perfection, but there simply must be a connection of faith and life for elders if the church's witness to the gospel is to be believed. And you see that whenever there is an elder of any church anywhere that does not match up their faith to their life, it is a scandal, isn't it? And it causes us to go, oh no, not again. Well, 
Why would Paul ask Titus to appoint these elders? Do you see it there in verse 5? To appoint elders in every town as I myself directed you. Doesn't the congregation have a say in the matter? Well, the New Testament is remarkably flexible when it comes to process. And that's why there are several denominations with varying forms of church government. The manner of choosing elders is not specifically identified in the New Testament. It may have been that Titus was the only person on the island who had the necessary spiritual maturity to make such an assessment. And so Paul gave him the task. It's also sensible to think that Paul is simply telling Titus to get the process started and that there were several other procedures that were involved which had member involvement. Although the word appointed there in verse 5, so that you might appoint elders, is a pretty strong word indicating that Titus was the major director of the process. So, God gives leaders to His church so that the true Christian can know whom to follow. Now, let's look at these next verse and a half. God reveals the qualities that must be present in those that the true Christian follows. It's interesting that all of the qualifications for a New Testament elder are character-based. In Judaism, there was a focus on the external qualities that tried to make sense of Leviticus 21. But in the end, for the Pharisees, it was just about how things looked. We can have the same problem today, just maybe different physical characteristics. As we look at these qualities this week and next in verses 6 through 9, let's worship God. Let's worship God that He has revealed these qualities so that when we see them in our church leaders, we can have confidence that we can follow these leaders. These are refreshing qualities that God prescribes for New Testament church leaders. First one, verse 6, if anyone is above reproach. This must be pretty important because it's listed first. It's repeated again in verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. It's described as a necessity, must be. <clears throat> it's required for deacons in 1 Timothy 3.10, and a synonym for above reproach is used for elders in 1 Timothy 3.2. Now, this, this word that's translated above reproach is sometimes translated blameless. It does not mean sinless because that would end up disqualifying all people. <laughs> However, let's be careful not to diminish the standard so that it is emptied of its meaning. It, doesn't, it does not mean unblemished. That word unblemished is used in the New Testament about our final perfection. But above reproach does mean unquestioned character. Hayne Griffin sees this word as a kind of head word that leads the description of all the rest of the qualifications that follow behind it. He divides this above reproach into three key areas that the remainder of the qualities go on to describe. And I think he's right here. If anyone is above reproach, and then there's three different areas. 
marriage and family in verse 6, personality and character, verses 7 and 8, and protecting the church against false teaching, verse 9. So let's look at verse 6 and see what above reproach means in marriage and family life. The husband of one wife. Now, it doesn't mean that one must be married. The way that the phrase is constructed makes that clear. But it does mean that a man has a faithfulness to the one he has married for as long as she is alive. This excludes polygamy, something that some cultures and missionaries to those cultures have had to deal with. And given the way our definition of marriage is trending, we may end up dealing with that sooner than we may imagine. Though many disagree with me here, I believe in the ancient tradition that this text has been traditionally understood for centuries, that this excludes a person who is divorced and remarried, though it would not exclude a person who is divorced and not remarried. It's not making any statement about the category or holiness of such a person, it's saying about the way in which that is a description of above reproach. The basic idea is that when it comes to sexuality and marriage, there's a character that's above reproach. That's why it comes as such a shock and a disgrace whenever any Christian leader is discovered to be involved in some sordid sexual abuse or exploitation. The second family description here in verse 6, his children are, according to this ESV translation, are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. This qualification here has been the source of a lot of speculation and not a small bit of grief. Does this passage mean that elders must have children? Does it mean that their children must be believers? so that the children must be old enough to have declared their faith in Christ before a person can become an elder? Is it that this is only for potential elders, and if after becoming an elder it becomes evident that a child of an elder is not a believer, that that's not disqualifying? Or is it that this is for both potential elders and existing elders, and that this is about a child of any age who shows that they are not a believer? You see the challenges that come with such a, such a verse. Let's get some of the easier issues out of the way. The text is not saying that elders must have children, just as it is not saying that they must be married. It is saying, however, that if one is married and if one has children, there are qualifications to being an elder. This text is also not saying that children must be old enough to know that they are believers. Elders can have babies. I don't think this text is just for potential elders. Just as all these qualifications fit both potential and existing elders, this qualification is the same. So, now let's tackle the harder questions that this qualification raises. While the word children here can be used occasionally in the New Testament of adult children, the vast majority of the time it refers to minor children under one's roof and authority, not to adult children. 
The issue is one of management of the home that reveals the character for management in the church. This is not an issue of the elder having the ability to create in their children the faith that leads to eternal life. Only God can do that. So that leads us to this very important question. What does it mean to say, as the ESV says, his children are believers? Well, it hinges on this word translated believers. It's the word pistis. And it can be translated two different ways and is all through the scripture. I don't have time to give you all the different places where it's translated differently, but just accept this idea that this word gets translated as believer, but it also gets translated as faithful or trustworthy. And I think that that word faithful is the better word to use here. And you'll see that if you have an ESV, it's actually down in the footnote. Uh, footnote number five, or are faithful. I think that's the better translation. Here's why. If Paul's introduction in verses one through four was about God's elect in eternity past coming to faith in the knowledge of the truth, if that's a real deal, then Paul's job was not to save the Cretans. His job was to bring the gospel near in both teaching and in life, and God was the one who did the saving and the growing. If that's true, the same must certainly be true of parents. We parents, and some of you feel this deeply, as much as we would like to be able to, cannot bring salvation to our children. It's not our ability. So Paul cannot mean here that elders must have children who are believers as though it is up to the elder to save his kids. Even the best, most godly parents can have children who do not believe in Jesus. And on the other side, some of the worst parents can have believing children. Such is the mystery of God's grace. It seems a stretch to believe that something that depends wholly on God, the salvation of a person, is something that qualifies or disqualifies someone from eldership in the church. In fact, all the other qualifications here have to do with some personal responsibility on the part of the elder candidate. It seems reasonable to expect that whatever this phrase means, it has to do with the same kind of personal responsibility. To require that an elder's children be saved is demanding personal responsibility for the salvation of another person, which is something that we find nowhere in the Bible. Now, if this text meant believing children, then the following qualification, the qualification that follows behind it, makes no sense. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. <laughs> Any children that have evidence of being believers would, not already, would already not be open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Those further qualifications, not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination, those further qualifications only make sense if we're talking about people who are not believers. The further qualifications help us to define what faithful means. It means that his family is 
under control and the children are faithful in such a way as to not be running wild. Now, there's a further danger in holding to the children must be believers view. The danger is that potential or existing elders could put undue pressure on their children for a premature or fake profession of faith that is lacking in either understanding or genuineness. And a further danger would be that children could be living for the devil, but because the elder holds on to some profession of faith that was made at some point, it could excuse an unqualified person to become an elder. Now, God does often use parents as the means by which he calls his elect to himself. That was the case in my life. For many of you would probably have that same testimony. I'm not diminishing that means. Parents, please, (laughs) please do teach and live the gospel before your children. God is often pleased to use that to bring his own to himself. But let's not think that we can make that happen. When we do that, we can create hypocrisy and false profession without even knowing what we're doing. So, what does it mean to have faithful children? It means that an elder has good management of his home and that his children in the home are not engaged in immorality or undisciplined rebelliousness. One commenter says, what must not characterize the children of an elder is immorality and undisciplined rebelliousness. If the children are still at home and under his authority. Another commenter, Paul is not asking any more of the elder and his children than is expected of every Christian father and his children. However, only if a man exercises such proper control over his children, may he be an elder. Now, Even here, we've got to be careful, don't we? How faithful is faithful? (laughs) Does it mean that there is never any immorality or rebelliousness? I think not. For having a sinless child, much less an unregenerate sinless child, (laughs) is impossible. Now, what this means is that a godly man is one who stays actively engaged in his children's lives, managing the spiritual nurture in his home so that his children know that he loves them deeply. He does not abuse them physically, emotionally, or spiritually. And when a child is in rebellion, he takes steps necessary to bring that child near the truth of the gospel. Over the years, several of our elders have agonized about their adult children who are not walking with the Lord. And some have had to take very significant measures to bring their minor children under control. In every case, in every case, these men have been broken by these difficulties and are brought to their knees in prayerful humility, asking the Lord to do what they cannot do, bring saving faith to their children. Joyfully, 
that has happened in some cases. Some are still waiting for that. In every case of which I am aware, I have been deeply moved by the humility of our elders and their willingness to leave the office as they are so burdened for their children. I recognize that this text has been interpreted variously by others. One big takeaway that I would urge you to consider is that whatever position a church, any given church, takes on these matters, they ought to be consistent, and they ought to have thought it through. Far too many people are inconsistent based on who or what is involved, or they haven't ever really thought about it at all. What I've described here is how we've thought it through at East White Oak, and as our culture in our country runs headlong away from Jesus and the gospel, I would anticipate that the difficulties, not just of our elders' children's salvation, but of all of our children's salvation will become ever more challenging. May I suggest to you that we are seeking to make a Herculean effort in this ministry to bring the gospel near to boys and girls. Whether it's on Sunday morning or Wednesday night, we long for Christ to be formed in the hearts of our boys and girls. To that end, I just want to dive in with a little commercial here. Awana starts on Wednesday. May I tell you that We've had diminishing sign-ups over the years, and this year there's been a particular drop-off in people signing up. And our Awana leaders have agonized, really prayerfully, thinking about what's going on, what's happening, how can we make this easier? And they've thought of a whole bunch of different ideas, but I'm not sure that the issue is organizational or programmatic. I wonder if we see just how vital it is. Remember I was, I don't know, nine years old or so when I first got into Awana, fourth grade. And I did what every Awana kid does, didn't look at my verses all week, and then on the way to Awana, I'm cramming, you know, trying to spit them out, right? I had a Awana leader, I think he's probably 80 years old, he was probably 40, but you know, (laughs) to me, he felt like he was 80, and I would get up there, you know, kind of charge the battery with the verse and go and spit it out real fast, he would not sign it, no, We'd go and play a game, then he'd say, now come and tell me the verse. You know? And people figured out, some of the boys figured out, you know, you just don't go to Harley to have him do the verses. (laughs) Right? Let me ask you this question. Why do I remember Harley? Why do I remember him? Almost 
60 years later, why do I remember him? Because he was a man who was committed to boys and girls. He loved boys and girls and he wanted Christ formed in them. And he wasn't content with just the ordinary. And he wanted me really to know those verses. And he really wanted me to know the Jesus behind those verses. You know, we have the same kind of leaders today in our church. Whatever it takes, mom and dad, whatever it takes. If there's a, if there's a problem in trying to figure out how you do it, I just want to tell you this, as your pastor on the other end of that where there are so many parents who are agonizing. And again, we can't control the salvation of boys and girls, but we can keep bringing them near the gospel and we just got to keep bringing them near it in, and make it and have it be real, not some fake plastic, legalistic, whatever name you want to attach to it. I mean genuine Christianity, the real article. That's my heart. Now in Titus chapter 1 verse 7, it says that an elder is God's steward. What a word. As God's steward. That's the primary job of an elder. A stewardship has been given to him, a responsibility, a weight to discharge. It's not because an elder is the most gifted or even the most qualified. There are people here in our church that are more gifted than our existing elders or even more qualified. It's not because you're a person of influence. It's not because you are well-known. It is not because you are wealthy. It's not because you've been in the church a long time. It is not because it's your turn. A little over 25 years ago, there was in the church that I used to pastor, there was a guy who had been an elder and then he was off for a while, and everybody expected him to come back, but he was involved in a lawsuit with his brother, who was also a believer and also in our church. And I said, 1 Corinthians 6, you guys need to reconcile. And I refused to allow him to be an elder in our church. I, I, I stood up, I said, we're not going to do it. He was so angry because he thought it was his turn. That is not why. It is instead to be a steward entrusted with God's church for God himself and that brings humility, it brings dependency, it brings prayerfulness, it brings joy, it brings sorrow. It brings both ownership of the sense of stewardship, but it brings a lack of ownership. It's not mine. It's Jesus, church. An overseer as God's steward. And so when you, as the members of East White Oak, bring 
your elders to prayer, think of Hebrews 13, 17. It just says they're men to listen to. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account for their stewardship and account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. And then for all of us, what is true here in this text and qualifications should be true of every believer. Let us all look at this and say, Lord, help me to be this kind of person. And then last, I want to just bring your attention to a couple of verses in 1 Peter 2. It says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his stripes you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer, same word as the word used here in Titus 1.7, overseer of your souls. In the end, the one we listen to is our Lord Jesus Christ. And all of the elders in Jesus' church everywhere are simply under-shepherds trying to bring people to the foot of the cross. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, I would just ask you, don't worry about all the things that I've talked about today. Go to Jesus, the chief shepherd and overseer. He'll give you eternal life. And when he does, he will open your eyes to see all the joys that's available even in Titus chapter 1. Let's pray. Lord, may we make much of you. May we see that the world's definition of qualified leadership is not yours. May those who are the leaders in our church have their faith and their life connected. And I pray that you would be with every mom and dad that they would love their children, that there would be no abuse of any kind, and that they would kindly and lovingly put the gospel on display for their boys and girls, and that you would be pleased to use even the ministries of our church to help bring that gospel near, that a generation would be raised up in this church that would change the world. In Jesus' name, amen.